Are any of you guys doing work in the Twitch space or the live streaming space more, more generally? Because I'm curious. It's a very different world in live streaming. Any thoughts about that and what the opportunities are as it seems to be blowing up? Do you have any ideas? You mean TikTok? TikTok. I was thinking more Twitch, uh, Facebook Live, uh, Facebook, yeah, Facebook Live, uh, YouTube Live, et cetera, et cetera. I don't do it, but I, I have friends that do it, and it, it just... It, it's exhausting for them. Right. You're always on. Like, and they literally are on air like 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Not that much, but like a lot. And then also like sometimes they'll go out in public with, you know, in live stream and which, uh, yeah. It, it just, must be a fun date, I bet. Yeah, you know, right. So, it, yeah, yeah it's, it, that is a totally just different lifestyle that, um, I mean, it's, it's popular because you're always connecting with your fans. So I, it's, it's definitely not going anywhere. And it just it adds an extra level of connection because you're always on. And, and now a new trend I see, uh, which a lot of my friends do, is they have, they have um, phone numbers that people can text them on. So they get extra, extra phones or extra lines, and they literally can text back and forth with their fans yeah. and like, keep them engaged. The extra texter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ron, any thoughts? I just said exhausting. Exhausting. That That's sounds it. exhausting. And you're not doing it. You're not going there. I'm not. You're I, leaving it for the kids. Oh, for the kids? I'd do it for the kids. Um, now I dabbled in some Instagram Live when that was bigger. And that was it's fun. I mean, the real-time engagement is fun. But to do it so much and so consistently, I mean, good It's really them, appointment but, viewing, right? I mean, so you kind of have to be there whenever they choose to show up. Right, and then you have to take into consideration, too, like, where is your audience and when is the best time of day? When are they not at work? What time zones are they at? And how long do you have to be on? You know, there's enough to juggle as it is. I think for me personally, that's very low on the priority list. Right, right. Brendan, because you look at these things as constructing a campaign, perhaps, for a client using on-air talent or on online talent, uh, how do you work? What's the opportunity in the live streaming space, not just in gaming where Twitch is dominant, but these other spaces beyond it, like beauty and fashion and all that, that are sort of edging into this? What, what, from your perspective as a sort of man behind the scenes, what are the opportunities in the live streaming space for brands and others, and how do influencers make money out of that? Well, I think that there's, there's a tremendous opportunity if you know how to leverage it properly. I mean, from a brand perspective, I think leveraging influencers that know how to tap into that community in the live space and, and foster that line of communication. I think one of the important things to understand in approaching any of these formats is there's different consumption behavior and you have to format your content differently in the way that you communicate. And that's where you will see certain influencers that are just amazing on live, but then it just doesn't translate to traditional YouTube or Instagram or Facebook content. And then you see the vice versa. You see amazing influencers that can create really viral content, like short form content on an Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. But then when they go to live, it doesn't translate because you have to hold their attention in a completely different way. And I think from a brand perspective is if you're going to get into the live space as a brand or an influencer, just understand, do you have the ability to communicate with audiences over that longer period of time uh, and engage them through that format? Or if you are a brand trying to activate an influencer, understanding what their strengths and what their weaknesses are, just because somebody has a million followers on Instagram or YouTube doesn't mean they can hold audiences' attention on live and vice versa. Just because somebody's amazing at live doesn't mean that they can create a video on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube that's gonna go viral. 
I mean, you've got the opportunity to create sort of an online QVC with some of this stuff. The e-commerce, I mean, and E, I would guess that you have a lot of clients that you might work with that would love to have you just saying, you know, buy my fashion stuff or whatever, right? I mm -hmm. mean, so there's an opportunity there. But are you doing live streaming much? I, I, I think I'm better without live. Yeah. I'm better <laughs> dead, I too. I totally agree. <laughs> so... Uh, so, so you're going to stick with the edited stuff that you've got a chance to optimize and perfect and all. Yes, that. yes, yes. Okay. I think I don't think live is my forte. Okay. I might develop it, but I, I don't want to say like in two or three years. Right. It's an interesting time, I think, because we do see this sort of blowing up as this whole new universe, right? And um, brands are going to go, oh, this is kind of interesting, and oh, this kind of feels like live TV. But it's the difference between somebody who's a radio DJ. And some and the, the the song that he's playing, the pre-recorded song that he's playing, and the the thing that's the live guy you can hold you or the talk show host versus the guy uh, who made the record that they're mm -hmm. playing. So it's a really different set of brain cells and and functions, and and uh, I find it fascinating to see how it's going. And most of the live audience is like younger kids, because who's going to have the time to sit there for two hours and like watch your favorite person? Like, yeah, when they've got to go watch, I don't know. Game of Thrones or The Watchmen or something, right. that, something serious, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, some, we talked a little bit about trying to find, find your friends. I'm curious how you guys, uh, do you do collaborations? Do you connect with others? Do you, and the collab is a, is a big thing, but how do you do it? How do you find it? Are there things to watch out for in terms of picking your partners? Um, how does that all work for you guys? Bruno, let's start with you. I'm a big fan of collaboration, but I think over time I had to come to terms with the fact that I don't necessarily have to take every collaboration that comes my way. I think in the beginning I was just so focused on, oh, I want to you know, get some new followers or I want to get see their audience or whatever. But I really, I listen to my gut first and foremost. If I don't feel like there's some synergy there or that their message aligns with mine, I'm not going to do it. it this is a little bit like the brand conversation too, right? About who you're right. going to do a deal with, right? Well, right. So because, like I said, vulnerability, authenticity, transparency, those are my three key words. I take that into consideration with every move I make, whether it's behind the scenes or out with the content that I create. So regardless of the dollar amount or regardless of how many followers this person may have, if what they're trying to partner with me to do does not fit my overall branding or message, I'm not going to do it because my audience expects something from me that's consistent. And so I just listen to my gut. And sometimes, you know, it is, which I hate, just for exposure, which is not pay the bills, but sometimes it can help and lead to, to other opportunities. And sometimes you just have to say no and, and tell yourself, you know, I'm worth more than just exposure, and if they're, they don't have a budget for this or if they can't pay, then there's going to be another opportunity that suits me better. I think that's a really interesting question about sort of, um, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this as a journalist, is, boy, I tell you, we, we get exposed a lot, but we sure don't get paid much, and so you have to think about, am I going to do that thing that's not going to pay much or anything? Am I going to even do that story? Is it worth the trouble? So uh, you really have to value your own content, your own time, and that's the hardest thing to value is my time right. uh, that you might put into this thing with somebody the, to get the exposure or whatever. Greg, how do you, how do you deal with the collab uh, space? Well, as, with, uh, I mean, with brand collabs, yeah, it, it should fit your brand, but then again, money talks. 
uh, I know people that <laughs> money really fits your brand well. I guess yeah. is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, it's, it's weird how that works out. Yeah, I, I know some people that do some stuff, and their their brand has suffered from it, but they're getting a very nice paycheck in any every good, month. In, any um, good stories though? You don't have to like out anybody, but like just uh, generically speaking, somebody who went for the went for the dough instead of the blowback and didn't worry about um, the blowback. There was like a story of a person like had to like post this really really political thing, and the guy like um, already gave him like literally sent over five thousand dollars in PayPal and said the money's in your PayPal like please just post this, um, and my friend actually ended up saying no to it because uh, it was like this weird political message which I won't go into. Um, That's really interesting. Like, the money was sent before. Before, before there was no a deal. Contract, there's nothing. It's just like, I found your email address. I've given you the money. Like, do this. And he sent it back. Um, now, see, that's but, really interesting because that's probably, and I used to cover politics for a long time, uh, back uh, around the time of the Constitutional Congress in 1789. Uh, but, but back then, uh, you know, that probably is a violation of campaign finance laws. $5,000, A, a lot of money, but B, you'd have to disclose the spending of that money. I wonder how many people took the money. Uh, yeah, probably. That's probably pretty fascinating, actually. Yeah. Um, and the post was only supposed to be up for, I think it was like 48 hours or something like that, but he still said no. It was just so That's long enough. opposite yeah. from his... Yeah, 48 hours is kind of the sweet spot anyway, right, for some yeah. of these posts. I mean, they're mm -hmm. off and gone if you're putting out stuff all the time. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, but as far as personal collabs, I, I mean, I, that's how I grew online through collabing. I think collabing is really important. Um, I mean, I come from the, the comedy space, but yeah. You take turns I, tell, telling jokes? Is that how it works? That? You take turns telling jokes or like he gets the punchline, you yeah, get the pass, setup? Yeah, pass the mic to different people. No, I, as far as like uh, collabing in the comedy space, it's just being in each other's videos um, and, and shouting each other out. I mean, there's... Uh, Those are support I, pods, so that's almost different, right? I mean... I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I actually used to live in an apartment building, um, which they banned it now, but uh, a bunch of influencers lived there and everyone would just cross-collab. So they they banned the influencers? Because I was living... Banned, I, I actually saw my neighbor. I don't if she's out here uh she's right here so i used to live in this apartment complex in north hollywood and there was there was this is a true story uh i didn't know everybody like she does because she's actually friendly uh and i'm not but we had a guy who helped me move out it was the nicest guy in the world but he at one point said and now he's kind of managing stuff and doing his own stuff and acting but he said at one point he had 12 people living in a two-bedroom apartment they were all influencers they would take turns like shooting stuff and and it's like this is insane how a how did they not like notice the smell, but uh, th that this is, is what they're exactly doing. exactly the same as my apartment. I, I lived at 1600 Vine in, in Hollywood, which is where a lot of the Viners... This uh, is like the Chelsea live. Hotel and, in New York. There is the apartments ex literally exactly the same. Uh, I had a friend that was sleeping in a closet. Um, there's people... <laughs> as like, opposed that, to being in the closet in other ways that no longer right, people right. have to do as um, much. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there was literally like 12 people in an apartment in some of those places, but... If you wanted, let's say you're doing a comedy video and you needed a couple extras, uh, you could just go knock on someone's door. I, I did a video uh, where I had, I think, 20 people in my apartment, and, and I came up with the concept 30 minutes before, and I had 20 people there in, in under 30 minutes. This is a flash mob apartment you're talking about, a complex yes. you're talking about. That's great. Yes. Brendan, um, I, I'm sort of curious because you... Um, you figured out how to get a, a million followers in all those countries uh, in a month, 30 days. Uh, were collaborations part of that? Is that something that you see as a, a really vital strategy or something that you don't think so much about? 
Facebook. We did it on Facebook first and no. Instagram, yes. We do more paid collaborations and we drive scale. It's not as quickly as growth, but we can do about 300,000 followers in a month, about 80,000 in a single day uh, by you know collaborating with different accounts that have large followings. So we do use it for that and we look at collaborations in other ways, specifically kind of the world that I focus on is more thought leadership and strategically leveraging podcast audiences, email lists, uh, things of that nature for more lead generation and revenue growth. So those are like crunchy groove thought, I mean like real more heavy duty than this is a nice picture. It's like really a little more yeah. involved, right? Yeah. Again, everything that we do, we kind of think a little bit outside the box on it and do it a little bit differently than most people to, to maximize performance for, again, for specific performance indicators that our clients have or that we have. It's very campaign specific though. Yeah, and it's very, it's very analytically driven. Like we don't do anything without specific numbers to benchmark our success because we need to do it at scale. And if it doesn't work, we have to figure out why it doesn't work so that we can fix it the next time and just keep optimizing the process. Do you have an example of where that really worked? The optimization, the A-B testing, all that? Do you have a, like a particular client or campaign you can talk about? Sure. Like, so for so Instagram, it took about, so Facebook, it took me about three years to develop the system to generate a million followers in 30 days. And we've done it in as short as 14 days. Instagram was a completely different beast. We had to start from scratch. It took about seven months. And the system that we designed is we have one account that has four million followers. So what we will do is we will use that account as a testing bed to test content to see what the effectiveness to drive followers back to our account, to drive traffic back to opt-in. And we'll constantly iterate and test different content formats, themes, structures, meme cards, first three seconds, uh, all of that. And then once we find a winning variation, then we have a network of about 12 different accounts that we will then syndicate that winning variation across and drive all that traffic at the same time. And that's where we see a tremendous amount of scale. Uh, so that's where we can generate you know, 80,000 followers in a single day by just using that systematic process. And we just keep refining and refining. And, and as everybody knows, what works today is not going to work a month from now. So we have to constantly, we've built a studio here in LA and we built a studio in the Philippines so that we can constantly iterate and test different formats and stories and structures to continuously drive that performance. Why the Philippines? Just because there's a English speaking audience, population is significant, uh, inexpensive labor. Cheap production. Cheap yeah, production. and the, like the talent there is amazing. Yeah. I mean, we're getting... They've been call center guys there for decades now. Yeah, so we have, like a, we have a, our, our, Studio head actually came from LA, moved out to the Philippines because he married a woman out there. And so he has the LA based skill set, and then he's just training people over there in the skill sets that we need. And it just, there's shorter, we still produce here in LA as well, but there's shorter turnaround time and lower cost when we put the Philippines. And again, because everything's a test, we don't want to spend too much in any direction until we know it's proven and then we can scale. Right. Right. E, uh, how much are you doing collaborations? I mean, obviously you um, have brands knocking on your door all the time, but how, in terms of collaborating with other influencers, is that something you do or is that sort of... Yes, we do bar? with my clothing brand. We collaborate with different 
uh, opinion leaders and influencers. Anybody and in particular that we would have heard about? That like you recently we collaborated with this uh, girl. She's 12 years old and she has big following on TikTok. And it was amazing to see her, how she really knew how to really express herself at her age and how she would record a video and, and, and really maximize, you know, her, her strength. And where was she in the U.S.? Or? She's based in Miami, but she was in, in L.A. I met her at the talk show. Okay. Yeah. You, you talked on TikTok. Yeah, she was, she, she's a, she really masters TikTok. the TikTok, yes. Okay. Um, and how did you work, work around the child, the COPPA stuff? How did you work around all that? Say again? The Child Online Protection Act stuff that we were just talking oh, about. We, I was with her. The mother was there. So okay. she actually recorded most of the content for the daughter. Okay. Yes. Right. Um, because for my clothing brand, uh, our target is also Gen Z. So she was perfectly followed. So she's on the back end of Gen Z. And yes. Right, right. Nicely uh, set up. We've got time, I think, for one or two questions. If there, anybody in the audience wants to wave their hand at me and stand up, you... Say, say your name real loud. So what's the procedure, uh, Brendan, for how do you test? What's, uh, what are you doing? What secret sauce do you have, like, um, just pulling the data off of Facebook or whatever and just crunching, crunching, crunching data in your spreadsheets, or what are you doing? So we have different methodologies for different objectives. So for again, if we're doing follower growth on Instagram, we're leveraging other accounts to organically post content and measure the effectiveness to drive followers back to the account that we're growing. If we're doing something that's focused on lead generation, traffic acquisition, conversion-based marketing, we'll typically use the Facebook and Instagram advertising platform both as a media buying tool, but more importantly as a market research tool because we've devised a system where we can take one piece of content and test it two or 300 different ways in a matter of hours to really optimize and learn what it takes for something to work against a specific intended audience. Uh, the beauty of that platform is each ad that you create is a dark post, which means it happens in the back end. It doesn't get posted to your feed. And that's where you can test thousands of variations in a matter of days to really understand and learn what it takes uh, to get somebody to perform a specific action, uh, both from conversion-based metrics, but also from an organic marketing perspective. Oftentimes, we will test a lot of different things like the meme cards, the color of the captions, the first three seconds, to see, see what resonates that can take those learnings to dictate both our short and long-term content strategy. Interesting. Anybody else have a question real quick? Otherwise, I've got another one. So, uh, Shane, you said you guys are dealing some with brands, particularly in beauty and some of those areas that are... Uh, there's a lot of CPG guys who are already signatories with you, um, with, with SAG-AFTRA. Are you all seeing any, and they're coming aboard to some extent. You've, they've given you guys some leverage in terms of dealing with, with uh, influences and all that. Are you seeing any trends in terms of the things, the deals that brands are making with influencers? Um, you don't have a standard contract like you do in, right. the, in the Hollywood space. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of trends and opportunities? I mean, we see everything, right? Because everything's out there and there's no um, set standard yet. So one of the things that we're kind of trying to push against is product trade with creators. So a lot of um, creators of all sizes have come to us and we're like, oh, on average, you get screwed every 
the first three brand deals you do because you just don't know what you're right, doing. Right, you have no idea what you're you doing. You have no right. idea what you're doing. And Here's a shirt. Taking, Go spend yeah. And my favorite story is a creator who we both know um, was like, you know, one of my first brand deals, I got paid in iced tea. And he's like, I don't even like iced it was, tea. It was called a liquid asset, right? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> But he was like, I walk into he my kitchen. He didn't even like iced tea? He didn't even like iced tea. Now, that's a really bad deal. It's right. like you don't even like the iced tea. And but you're he doing was so deal. excited you know, to be approached by a brand that he jumped on the opportunity and didn't think it through. Jumped on the Lipton train. Mm-hmm. That's right. So that's one of the things that we're exploring. Just you can't pay your rent in iced tea is kind of my new favorite catchphrase. Um, Unless it's the Kool-Aid man you're renting from or something. There you go. Give him the two. The, so, you so you're seeing, you're trying to get away from the product deal. So that's a word of the wise. Don't just do the in-kind product deal. That's if you're starting out, you've got 5,000 followers or whatever. You think it's really cool. you got a free T-shirt. But you're still doing work. Again, what's your work yeah. worth? Yeah. Right? Significant work. So what, what are you guys seeing in terms of deals? If any of you guys want to jump in, Greg or uh, Brendan or any of you guys, um, in terms I mean, of... I, I do agree with the first three deals. You get screwed. I, I did a thing where uh, I got paid a little bit of money, and then it was supposed to be posted on Facebook, and they were going to do ad spend on the video on Facebook. Um, it was, I think it was like 2,000 bucks. They never did the ad spend. So the video got made, posted, and then uh, I took a little bit less money. Uh, it was one of the first things I did, less money. Because you would have got more if they got more viewership, but they weren't totally organic, which yeah. doesn't exist anymore. But I mean, the thing is, like, am I gonna go try to sue them or anything? Exactly. It's just like, you, you have no production. So I just moved on. Great. So you're screwed, and there's no options, and you're, it's going to happen, so you might it's as well. It's one of the first three, so it's fine. Just get through the first three, and hope to God you learn something. Huh? Yeah. Bruna, any experience that, uh, that you've had, changes, shifts that you're seeing in terms of the, I'm sure they're lining up to do deals with you? From your mouth to God's ears. Uh, brand deals is probably one of the areas that I'm struggling with in all transparency. Um, I get a lot of offers from brands that are really excited to do work, and I'm like, okay, great. What's your budget? How oh, excited are you? Oh, don't have a budget. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. And they'll be like, we'll send you this, or we'll give you a percentage uh, with the affiliate stuff, but it's also like, if nothing sells, I still do the work, and I'm not getting anything for it. And it's one really of, spec work is what yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. And so, and especially if you're a solopreneur and you're running everything, you're running the show and you don't have experience with brand deals, like mm-hmm. you were mentioning, you get excited that anyone even noticed you. And so you're like, oh, I want to do this. But then at some point you have to be like, I'm investing my time. Mama got to get paid. Right. I got yeah. bills. So, and I'm hungry. So yeah. like you got to get paid for what you're doing. And One of the biggest lessons I learned when I went from corporate to freelancing is it's a big test on your self-worth because you are constantly showing up for yourself and you are the one vouching for yourself. So if I keep sitting here and accepting these low-end deals that are not paying anything, what am I really saying about my value and and the value of my content that I'm creating? So then at some point you have to tell yourself, no, I'm worth more than what they're willing to offer. I'm willing to be courageous enough to say no to these deals that aren't giving me anything because I know at some point there's going to be a brand deal that's going to come in and be worth my time and, and value. Interesting process. Uh, Brendan, because you, uh, you're you working on a big stage and I'm sure brands come to you quite a lot to make stuff happen, are the deals different now? Are they shaped different? Are there trends and changes that you're seeing in how this is all working across the various platforms? 
Yeah, I mean, it's changed dramatically. I, I can remember, I did the, pretty sure I did the first ever influencer campaign on YouTube ever in 2006. So it's changed dramatically. OG man. Yeah, I've been in I've been in the space quite a while, uh, but it's changed dramatically since then. And again, the way that I look at everything, and you, whether you're an influencer or a brand hiring an influencer, it's prove your worth. Like, what is the value you're driving to the business? And as an influencer, what I would do is go and. Ask them, what is your key performance indicator? What are you benchmarking your success off of? And then be realistic with yourself. Can I deliver on that for the brand? And if you can, then maybe what you do is you take a little bit less. Or maybe you're willing to do a campaign for free under the conversation to say, hey, listen, if I prove my worth to you, can we work on a longer-term deal? And no brand will say no to that if you can drive success for their company. And I think the other thing that was, was mentioned and we do a lot of, and for an influencer or a brand hiring an influencer is something you should really consider is understanding how to leverage paid media. Because people get under this assumption that just because an influencer is posting organically, that automatically that's going to generate a tremendous amount of sales. It can, but you want to maximize the potential of that piece of content by fueling it with paid. And that could happen in a number of different ways. You can just take that specific organic post and feel paid behind it. Or what you can do is you can do an organic post that is just purely value-driven driven and entertainment-driven and then retarget or remarket to the people that engage with that piece of content with a more direct response-focused advertisement. I think that that's where a lot of people miss out when they're leveraging influencers. And I think it's, like it's the also, second step, really, is what yeah, you're talking and, about. And I think it's, a, it's also from an influencer's perspective, you can add a tremendous amount of value if you actually take the time and understand how to leverage the paid advertising platforms to drive success. There's all this talk about organic. I grew organic. My organic engagement, engagement it's great. But what really fuels success and fuels sales is paid media. And that's why Facebook and Instagram and YouTube are so profitable is because their ad platforms work. So... I think that that's something that you can really bolster your value in the campaigns that you run. Great. All right. I think we're out of time. Give these guys a big hand. They're pretty awesome. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. And that's our show. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. As I said earlier, going through an accident that could have been so much worse, bad enough, but could have been so much worse in the month of Thanksgiving certainly encourages one to think about the things we need to be grateful for if the holiday of Thanksgiving wasn't enough to do that in the first place. There is a lot, and I am so grateful to have you as people who choose to listen. If you like what you hear, if you like uh, what I'm talking about, please rate, review, subscribe makes a big difference with the magic algorithm machine out there. If you really, really, really like what I'm doing, please uh, consider being a supporter. Uh, the site that syndicates and hosts my podcast across 10 platforms, Anchor.fm, makes it easy to become a supporter. You can chip in a few bucks toward uh, keeping this media machine rolling. And uh, if you were one of those, I would appreciate you even more than I already do if it's somehow possible. You also can use Anchor.fm to leave an audio comment on this or other things that are on your mind. Please let me know what you're thinking. I always want to hear from my followers and my listeners. You can also reach me on LinkedIn at David L. 
Bloom on Twitter at David Bloom, B-L-O-O-M. Please engage and let me know what's happening in your life, what's changing with technology that's mattering to you guys. Uh, in the meantime, stay in one piece. Remember to tell the ones you love how you feel about them. Hug them close. Treasure them always. And please keep coming back and listening here. This is David Bloom for Bloom in Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom, and we look at all things colliding in the entertainment, technology, and media space and pick through the rubble to find the cool, interesting stuff that matters now and may matter in the future as well. I have to uh, apologize. I have been off the air, as it is, uh, in this digital universe for much longer than I would like. About three weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago, I was involved in a pretty serious car accident that uh, wrecked the car I was in and left my spouse and myself pretty beat up, and we've been both recovering from our injuries, which we will get through and get over, but also dealing with this whole cloud of other things that one gets to deal with, even when it wasn't your fault, of replacing a car and dealing with lawyers and dealing with insurance companies and going to a multiplicity of doctors and multiple follow-up visits. It's just been great all the way around. I strongly recommend you don't get into accidents and try to avoid people doing dumb things in their pickup trucks where they don't notice you coming the other way. That being said, it's been a wonderful opportunity here in this month of Thanksgiving to practice gratitude and to practice patience. And we are so thankful to be more or less intact and more or less healing and moving forward and to be alive and together and functioning. And I am so glad that I'm able to be back recording one of these conversations. I've been able to get some work done here and there, but there have been a lot of interruptions and a lot of, I have to confess, a lot of loss of focus as I've dealt with stuff and had to go off to those that whole cloud of stuff that I talked about. Anyway, uh, one of the things I wrote about that caught my eye this month, um, I was at the Digital Hollywood Fall 2019 gathering uh, a little bit earlier, maybe 10 days ago, and uh, among the things that uh, happened there, I was on a panel, I moderated another panel, and I will bring you the conversation of that panel that I moderated, which features a bunch of people who are influencers, influencer marketing specialists, people like that who are really sharp and do a lot of really interesting stuff about how to optimize and maximize the current universe of the influencer business. I think it's a pretty interesting conversation. But I also, while I was there, sat in on and listened to a, a panel about 
sports marketing and sports distribution. They had some, some notable people. And out of it, they had a couple comments that really caught my ear and made me think. And it's like, oh my goodness, athletes in college sports have long been relatively isolated from the world of influencers and influencer marketing, but not anymore. In the coming months, we can expect to see a deluge of athlete influencers who will finally be able to leverage that rising stardom in new ways, making potentially a lot of money. Now, I want to say these are athlete influencers at the college level who've been tightly, tightly controlled. They'll be able to do it on social media platforms as well as on more traditional endorsements. These social media platforms, of course, have enriched so many young influencers, but we have no idea what's going to happen next in this space with the athletes. I was reminded of this very complicated new flood of influencers coming while listening to a panel of sports distribution and marketing executives at Digital Hollywood. Autumn Nazarian, one of the panelists and an SVP of sponsorships for the media agency Mindshare, said, if you think influencers have made things confusing with celebrity endorsements, just wait until you add thousands of student athletes. The NCAA, the much maligned, and rightly so, billion-dollar organization that regulates intercollegiate sports, recently announced that college athletes will be able to make money from their likeness, name, and image. Suddenly, star athletes with an online following may have a chance to make money from it, just like any other 19-year-old with a million ardent followers has been doing for the past decade, give or take. But what this development really means is still a mystery, because new rules haven't been created, schools haven't set out policies, and no one's quite sure what's next. One thing's for sure, it's setting off some interesting questions. Will a high school athlete make their decision about where to play at the next level based on which school can help their online presence? or help them win a national championship? Will they choose the school with the best athletic program in their chosen sport, the one with the best academics, or the one with the best social media marketing team? And the whole question of how to treat players in so-called non-revenue sports is looming over it all. Henry Watson, who is a VP of Distribution and Partner Marketing for the Pac-12 Network, the TV network owned by the Pac-12 Conference, Uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, said there's a lot of questions about equity. And he's right. Does the school want its football players making hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially, in endorsement deals, while the women's rowing team makes nothing? There's another layer of complication on top of this, of course. Title IX, the landmark federal civil rights legislation that's now about 40 years old, mandates schools spend as much money on teams for its female athletes as it does for the teams for its male athletes. Does that legislation extend to influencer income the athletes could make based on their value in the market? And if it does, do we want the federal government deciding how much people get to make instead of letting the market figure it out? It is a big business. The USA Today annual list of the nation's biggest athletic budgets for public universities, which is typically topped by the University of Texas and Texas A&M at around $200 million a year apiece, is a real eye-opening vision of how big this business can really be. That list that USA Today puts together does not include private schools, but you can bet multi-sport powers such as USC, Stanford, and Notre Dame spend something not far below that $200 million level. For nearly every school, football pays most of the bills. Men's basketball and sometimes women's basketball break even, and every other sport is subsidized heavily. How those latter non-revenue sports and their athletes will be treated is a big question. 
And on top of all of this stuff, we have esports, which is just becoming a thing. You can't ignore that for many millennials, as Nazarian said, esports is the national pastime, not something like baseball or even football, as much as football gets watched by a somewhat older generation of people. Already more than 300 schools, including big athletic programs such as the University of Washington and Ohio State, have esports teams, and many are offering at least partial scholarships to players. And none of this is regulated by the NCAA. So how did this all happen? It started more than a decade ago, actually, with a lawsuit by a former star UCLA basketball player named Ed O'Bannon Jr. Way back in 1995, a quarter century ago, Ed led his team at UCLA to the national championship. He was a really classy guy. His brother played for the team. They had grown up in Artesia in the southeast corner of Los Angeles County. Uh, Really a great family. Uh, He became the national player of the year uh, and was a featured digital character, though without his name attached, just his likeness and his uniform number and his physical size and all of his stuff in a basketball video game focused on college basketball. Neither O'Bannon nor any of the hundreds of other college players represented in the game received a nickel for the use of their likenesses. Uh, Subsequently, 15 years later, O'Bannon filed a class action lawsuit as the name plaintiff against the game's developer, Electronic Arts, and the collegiate licensing company. Eventually, those two uh, defendants settled the suit in 2013 for $40 million. O'Bannon also filed suit against NCAA over antitrust issues for restraining the ability of college athletes to make money off their name, image, and likeness. They won at the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, but the federal, I mean, the Supreme Court decided not to take the case. Uh, The judges concluded that some NCAA rules governing athletes did violate federal law. Though they wanted Supreme Court review, it would not do what they said, grant certiorari. That's a Latin term meaning to grant prior review of the previous case. That basically left the Ninth Circuit case as the final law in the states where the Ninth Circuit operates, which is the west coast of the United States. That non-ruling opened the door for changes to the NCAA's, to my mind, frankly, antediluvian approach to athletes and money-making. California soon became the first state to challenge the NCAA. They passed legislation this last September that directly contravenes the NCAA rules and explicitly allows athletes playing for California schools to make money from their name, image, and likeness. The NCAA threatened to blackball all California schools. It was had to be seen as a pretty empty threat given how many hundreds, and I mean hundreds, of national championships have been won by the state's universities. UCLA, USC, and Stanford, I think, all have more than 100 national championships for their various sports. Schools like the University of San Francisco, which won a couple of uh, uh, national collegiate basketball titles, and the California State University at Fullerton, which won a baseball title. I think Long Beach State, Cal State Long Beach, also won a baseball title over the years. There are lots and lots of other programs that have done well. Add in the fact that one in eight Americans live in California, and the NCAA's attempt at intimidation looked pretty hollow. What, you're going to ban all those schools and try to make your way without them? I don't think that's going to work very well. It looked even more empty when about a dozen other states also prepared to pass similar legislation. At the end of October, the NCAA caved 
So here we are. Marketing executives now speculate that a star such as Trevor Lawrence, the sophomore Clemson quarterback who's already won a national championship, might be able to reap $1 million or more in endorsements before he heads off to the NFL. He's kind of a rock star looking guy with his long surfer hair and he's at Clemson, which is a big program and been very successful and will probably be in the college football playoff once again and uh, he'll, he'll do just great. But I'm more interested in what happens for athletes with less obvious but potentially significant opportunities, especially as social media savvy young athletes out there begin to leverage their skills online as well as off to really generate funds for what they do well. I think there's a lot of opportunities here and a lot of questions that are really going to be fascinating to watch play out. For instance, what about the athlete who can suddenly make serious money from the images and video they post to Instagram of their gymnastics or track workouts or their weight training? How are the schools going to handle the backdoor funneling of cash from boosters to potential signees of a big program simply by signing hefty influencer marketing deals before the kids even decide where they're going to go play? Will stars of regional sports like wrestlers in the plains of Iowa and Oklahoma where it's a gigantic sport or lacrosse on the Atlantic coast from Syracuse to Johns Hopkins or hockey across the upper Midwest and Northeast from University of Minnesota and University of Denver to um, you know Boston University and Northeastern, will they be able to leverage their local stardom for online paydays that might actually be significant? And then the potential for conflict is really fascinating, too. What if a school has an endorsement deal with, say, the AMPM convenience store chain? Can its star player then cut a separate deal with 7-Eleven? For that matter, could the player even post a selfie on Snapchat with a 7-Eleven big gulp? What would that do? It's way too soon to know the answers to any of these questions, but this is going to be a wild ride, and no one figures that, has figured out where it's headed. And this area had a amusing bit of speculation says it will change the purity of the game and she sort of apologized because no one thinks of particularly football and basketball as being pure these days but she said who knows maybe in 10 years it'll thrust us into high school sports which is still really amateur right anyway so that's my thoughts on that stick around uh, we will hear from the panel that I recorded that I moderated on the influencer life, influencer marketing, some of the things. I had some really great people like uh, Izu and uh, uh, Brendan Kane and some other folks, Greg Martin, who uh, are really um, doing some interesting stuff in the business of influencer marketing. Um, I only wish that I had heard of, about the athlete stuff before I had my panel, but we kind of opened things up. We were one of the showcases. So stick around, and after a message from our sponsor, we'll be right back. so much for coming and listening. Um, now I've got uh, a recording of my conversation with members of 2019 Digital Hollywood Fall Conference panel on the influencer life. And uh, you'll hear each of the panelists introduce themselves, and they have lots worthy of um, uh, tracking down. I, uh, I strongly recommend you give it a listen if you have any interest whatsoever in the influencer space and where it's going. They all have smart stuff to talk about. We'll be starting that now. 
Hey everybody, I'm David Bloom. I am your moderator for this kickoff panel on influencers and the fabulous lives they lead and all the complications they're dealing with. I am a writer and podcaster myself. I write for people like Forbes and TubeFilter, which uh, focuses on the influencer space and influencer marketing. I strongly urge you to check them out if you are at all interested in the things we're going to be talking about. Uh, we have some great people here. I will let each of them introduce themselves and tell you exactly what fabulous reason has landed them here. Uh, they'll tell us briefly about themselves, and then we'll get into the meat of this stuff. And I'll leave a little time for you guys to lob in some inappropriate questions at the end. So let's start with Shane to my immediate blue right. And let us, let us know about where you're from, Shane, and what you're up to. Where am I from? Um, so my name's Shane Griffin. I work at the Screen Actors Guild, also known as SAG-AFTRA. We uh, represent 160,000 professional performers that range from anywhere from actors to puppeteers, singers, dancers, and content creators slash influencers. Um, and where am I from? I'm from San Francisco originally. Thank you for asking. Um, and I'm here because, you know, we see the need for content creators to have representation. So we've been working and we'll talk more about that in this space and this community. Hi everyone, my name is Bruna Nessif. I am the typical millennial that wears many hats. So I write, speak, coach, literally any job that comes my way that I feel inspired by, I will take it on and do my best. Um, I'm an LA native and I'm here because I've worked in the digital space for so long and I feel a shift coming on as far as content and how content is received and I think that's a conversation we need to continue having so I'm excited to be here. Hi everyone, my name is Greg Martin. Uh, I'm an actor and also a content creator and producer. Um, I produce content for a lot of uh, bigger influencers. I just did one for Amanda Cerny on Sunday. Uh, and I'm from 15 minutes from here at a place called Tarzana, which mm. Britney Spears put on the map years ago when she shaved her head. <laughs> that could be a book, though. I'm from 15 minutes from here, you know? That could be like a really good biography. I know yes, some, that, some influencer is going to write that best-selling New York Times book in about three weeks, I think, called that. I will so. do the book release in this room. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I know a lot about the influencer space. I've been around it for a while, and also the acting entertainment space. My name is Brendan Kane, and my background is primarily as a digital and business strategist, so I've been in the space for about 15 years, and my background's quite diverse in the fact that I pretty much have touched every aspect of it. So I started off in entertainment, managing digital divisions for movie studios, overseeing the theatrical campaigns of films ranging from $1,500 million budgets, and then from there got heavily into the paid media space, helped build one of the largest social paid optimization firms where we were managing about 100 million a year in paid spend. And then from there I just saw the inefficiencies in content marketing and, and media spend and developed my own set of testing methodologies and predictive calculations for a lot of uh, celebrity and brand and corporate clients. And then decided to run a case study on myself of generating a million followers in 100 countries in 30 days and then published a book earlier this year on that process and have since duplicated the results about 10 times at this point. So where are they? I mean, all those million followers, they, they should be here, man. Come on. <laughs> I want some audience, damn it. So anyway, we've got a beautiful audience for what we've got this early in the day, on the first day, but thank you all for being here. And finally, Izu. 
Hi, my name is Yi, and uh, I'm a Chinese-Italian multimedia artist, and I also own a brandy marketing company which produces uh, my content from my own platforms as well as for luxury brands. And I also started a clothing line last year called Global Intuition, and we also license, um, you know, um, people like uh, the Italian prince from the Italian royal family, Emanuele Filiberto di Savoia, etc. And our new partnership is also with Billboard. I never Upcoming. heard of him. That's a, another, that's, that's like a outdoor advertising company, Billboard, right? No, I'm <laughs> uh, they, they belong to the other guys. Uh, I guess I'd like to start with the, um, the biggest news in the influencer space, Instagram has decided not to show likes. And apparently some people in the influencer space think the world may end this week or next. <laughs> They're not quite sure. But I'm sort of curious about what you guys think about that. What does that mean uh, for those of you who worry about things like likes and followers? What does They're doing it because they want to take away some of the uh, what they believe are negative incentives in that race for more likes, but it has lots of implications for influencers and influencer marketing. I'd love to hear your all's thoughts. Who wants to take that first? I'll take it. Okay. Um, well, first off, I know that what they tell us, I'm also a very big conspiracy theorist, but what they tell us Ooh. is... We're not going to get into that. that I know. No room we'll, for conspiracy we'll just tiptoe into that territory. I understand their argument about mental health with likes and social media, and I do think that's a huge problem, and this could remedy that, but also Instagram is a business, and by taking away likes, they are now forcing users to use sponsored posts and businesses to approach things differently so that they don't directly link to influencers and give them the money they have to go through the platform. They that's actually it. not a conspiracy. That's a business decision. Well, I'm just, just trying to... Just clarifying For your... those who aren't willing to hear that, that was my little caveat. But also, I think it's great for content creators. It's a great reminder that you should not create all your content on one platform because technology is finicky and we have something new every day. And so if you put all of your investment and all of your creation on one platform, should that sink or something happens... Where does all of that content go? And now where does your career go from that point on? So I think it's a great reminder that you should always have a personal website, that you should create some sort of other platform to house everything that you create so that should this happen or should what happened to Vine happen, you have somewhere else that people can go to to find everything that you do. I, I would say this is the, the, the near weekly reminder that you shouldn't put all your uh, eggs in one basket, right? <laughs> right. I mean, uh, we've got a, what, twice a year, three times a year, uh, YouTube uh, wrench in its algorithm. Facebook does it a couple times a year just to screw everybody up. Uh, this is just the latest and one of the biggest uh, of such right turns. Uh, anybody else have some thoughts on on what this means? Uh, e e e yeah, I think it, I think it's in a way better because we can really focus on the quality of the content as versus numbers. And I think there's a lack of content quality when it comes to just counting the likes and engagement, et cetera. Well, I, I will agree with you that the idea that likes when you are on your how many people actually look at you know, you scroll through, right, and you're going tap, scroll, tap, scroll. That is not engagement, right? That is about as far away from actual engagement with a brand. It's like, oh, I like that picture. Fine. Boom, 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 boom. That doesn't count as engagement to me. So I guess 
what is engagement and, and what should be measured and what should be brands, if they're dealing with you guys, what should they be looking at? I think really looking at the quality, because if you're looking at the likes, uh, not necessarily the posts that get the most likes, uh, they deliver uh, quality. And I think for me, uh, starting you know, my career as a multimedia artist, uh, to create something that is meaningful and then leave something behind is the most important as versus how many likes. Mm -hmm. Brandon, I'm curious, since you have... Uh basically been hacking the, and I don't mean that in any bad way whatsoever, uh, hacking the algorithms to figure out how to maximize opportunities to get followers, trying to figure out how brands can do this. What do you think this is going to mean for brand engagement? I mean, I think what Bruno is saying is pretty interesting about how it, it pulls away the opportunity for just go find a bunch of Instagram influencers. Now you got to go through the, the mothership to make money. What do you think about that? Yeah, I have a bit of a different perspective on the on it. First off, from what, everything that I hear is they're taking away public facing likes, but on the back end, that data will still be available. So from a brand perspective, you will still get access to engagement metrics and all of that. I don't think that this change is being made to drive more revenue to the ad platform, because if you look at all the overall revenue of Facebook and Instagram compared to what the revenue of the influencer market is on Instagram, it's not even close. It's, it's a fraction of a percent of the overall revenue. So Facebook and Instagram are definitely making decisions that's going to drive more user engagement. They're talking about mental health, which I don't agree because the fact of the matter is, is all these platforms are successful is because they're tying subconscious desires to internal triggers. So they're essentially making people addicted to the platform and they're doing this knowingly because they have behavioral scientists on their platform. So from a brand perspective, I don't honestly think it's gonna change much. Um, I will say that yes, looking at likes is a bit of a surface level metric, but you have to have some level of metric that you're benchmarking your success off of and leveraging influencers. Now typically when I'm working with brands, I like to have some correlative action that's measuring revenue, whether that's a cost per lead or a cost per conversion, because that's really gonna tell you. I agree quality is very important. Uh, but quality is subjective. And if you could have the most compelling piece of content in the world, but if 20 people see it and it doesn't generate any revenue or leads versus a piece of content you just shoot on your iPhone that generates you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in revenue, to me that's kind of the benchmark of how you're leveraging influencers to drive your overall business. So you're really focused literally on the bottom line. It's like it's great it to have all the these client. numbers, but how does it get to something that, it goes to their bottom line where they make money or they yeah, move, the, move the dial. Exactly. Somewhere. It depends on the client, though. If you're working with Coke or Pepsi, you're not doing direct response marketing. You're doing brand awareness. But for a lot of businesses, they're leveraging influencers to drive some type of interaction with their business. And whatever that KPI is, just know it is and just see if you're hitting it. Right. You've got to figure out some way to make it tangible, though. A exactly. Real, real return on investment. Greg, I'm sort of curious what you think. Um, I, I think, I mean, basically because I've heard it's going to be shown in the back end, I don't think that the mental health is going to get better. Although I've seen, <laughs> I've it's a little seen, late for that, right? Yeah, I've seen that firsthand, and it is definitely a very big problem uh, online. Um, I've seen a lot of issues firsthand. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the boobs, butts, and abs are not going away. Great to hear. Shane, uh, one of the things sort of scary to think about. But Shane, one of the things that you are involved in with SAG-AFTRA is trying to um, deal with some of the issues that include mental health 
challenges for so many extremely hardworking influencers. Uh, this is a good segue, I think, to talk about what what can be done, what's realistic to be done when these platforms really hold nearly all the cards. It's not like when you're dealing with the studios that SAG-AFTRA has for 100 years. You're dealing with uh, a bunch of tech firms that really aren't known for their humanity. So how do you leverage, what, what leverage do you have and where, where do you hope to go in trying to organize influencers and all the rest? That's a lot to answer. I, um, we've got an hour, so just fill. That's all I'm saying. Um, all right, sorry, guys. I'm going to take this. Um, no, so I think going back to actually the issue that was just discussed with uh, likes now being uh, suppressed to the users, it's an example of how the platforms have so much control and the creators themselves don't have a voice in the process. And what SAG-AFTRA is seeking to do is to help creators come together so that they do have a voice in what determines their ability to thrive as professionals in this environment. So if a creator goes to YouTube or goes to Instagram and says, hey, I don't like this change, they could be like, okay, sorry, we're gonna make this. But if 100,000 of them come together and say, actually, this affects us all, please don't make this change or work with us to make changes that benefit both parties, then there's power in that. And they really do have to sit down and discuss. So that's what we're working towards developing is a community of buy-in so we've already established that with traditional um, artists, so actors, you know, like with studios and stuff, we can actually sit down and come up with uh, contracts that work for both sides, and that's what ultimately we want to do in the creator space. Well, I mean, you certainly see it with the Writers Guild smacking mm -hmm. the uh, talent agencies upside the head this last year over what they felt like was double dealing, getting paid by the studios for packaging fees to rep while representing their clients. Uh, that's a fight that's going to continue, and it should make for a very festive next year as the Writers Guild and Screen Actors Guild contracts expire. Um, but in terms of uh, actual health, mm -hmm. do you guys have things like ways to help, I mean, other than banding together to say, stop screwing us, uh, to help keep our beloved influencers sane? in all of this or you all have recommended yeah. practices best practices and things like that have you gotten there you're just still organizing only we're still working on that however i do think it's important for a lot of creators to access mental health services just like so many of us do so one of the things that our um, talent have access to are health insurance and mental health services at a fraction of the cost if they were to go on the free market and get health insurance so that's something that we're trying to promote in this community is like hey, this is a really hard world. You know, we have access to mental health professionals that can help you navigate, but we're also developing like how to avoid burnout and to make sure that you're getting compensated at a level so that you don't have to work 10 times as hard to get to the same end product. I mean, some of what you're going to have to deal with is an algorithms on places like YouTube that reward slavish, uh, rapid uh, posting mm -hmm. week after week, mm -hmm. even day after day, that can lead to that burnout. Uh, how I'm curious, each of the influencers, how do you guys deal with issues of burnout and getting worn out? How do you, I mean, what do you do to sort of manage uh, your workflows to get enough presence out there, but not so much that you break down like a old <laughs> plow horse or something? So any thoughts, uh, Yi? Um, I think just uh, like a work-life balance, like normal, you know, like uh, sometimes you post less 
and sometimes you post more. So what, what would be less less posting for you or more posting? <laughs> Maybe like one time a day. Oh, that's cutting way back. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate you pulling it back, you know, yeah. putting brakes on. It's good. <laughs> like five times and on part. every platform. <laughs> yeah, right, on every platform. Uh, Brendan, what do you think? Um, right now, I think it still rewards frequent regular posting, correct? And, and how do you manage that? I actually see the opposite. Do you? I, I focus really on quality over quantity because what we, and this is just from my learning to my perspective, are there influencers out there that post multiple times a day and have success? Absolutely. And one of the things I always preface is there's so many different ways to be successful. But what I like to talk about that's kind of the reverse of what everybody says is it's, you don't have to post every day. You don't have to post multiple times to be successful. You just need to, A, understand how the algorithms work and design content first for the algorithms. The, the biggest mistake that people make in designing content is first off, they're designing it for themselves uh, and what they want to say. And then secondarily, if people actually understand that they have to design content for an audience and think that perspective, then they don't think about the algorithms. And we think first and foremost about how the algorithms work, what they look for, and then we only publish or post something unless we think it's going to perform or we've tested it ahead of time and we know it's gonna perform. So we actually see far more success, like even for my channels and we've pulled back, we're posting like once a week, but like my creator, my creative director built a team that was doing about three and a half billion views a month and they were only doing one post a week and they were beating BuzzFeed and other companies in video performance. So that's something just to consider. Uh, in terms of like burnout and fatigue, I think one of the things that people don't talk about is this is hard work. Like you gotta know that going in. It's no different than entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship suffers the same problems in terms of burnout and mental fatigue and mental health. So if you really wanna be in this space, just know it's gonna be hard work and you have to understand why you're doing it and find some redeeming factor to why you're doing it. Me personally, I, like, I'm optimizing my health as much as I'm optimizing the content I'm producing. So I do everything from exercising to diet to meditation to therapy to everything to keep myself operating at a highest performance. But this isn't any different than any other entrepreneurial venture that you will go out into the world and do. It's going to be hard and it's going to be challenging. Well, I think that's a really interesting point. You're being an entrepreneur, but the entrepreneur's product is yourself mm -hmm. and your yep. take on the world mm -hmm. and how you, um, you uh, talk about the world around you. And I think that that's not always understood. That product, you've got to put it out there. You've got to make sure it's really good quality product and you've got to have enough product out there to make a living off of it, really. But it's really a, a thought process. The life-work balance that he talks about is, is really making sure that you're in decent enough shape to do the work, to, mm -hmm. to create the product, right? He, yeah, I, I think I have a, a, I disagree with what he says because, I mean, it's my point of view. I believe that I never calculate with algorithm or never calculate because uh, I think it's really important because we are human beings, we're not machines. So if I was a machine, yes. Speak for yourself, come on. I mean, anyway. What do you mean? I, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, if, we, if I was a machine, yes, I would be coping with all that. But I think because we are human beings and, and that makes us stand out, the fact that we, we're made of emotions, we're made of impulses and that are beyond rational control. So I think my social media, the way it has been built and, and thank God has always been brought a lot of, um, you know, um, attention 
in China and also now more in the West as well is because I've always been very organic in terms of the content I want to post or when we want to post. We never calculate and we never um, pre sort of uh, plan, plan yeah. because I really center on the human aspect mm -hmm. of it to show that we're human beings behind the post. Okay. Mm -hmm. yes. And I just want to comment on that quickly. Uh, I agree with everything that she's saying. I, I will say that machines actually do control the distribution of our content. And I'm not here as an influencer. I'm here to systematically show people how to be successful online. So I have to break it down into a systematic way and what she's achieved is remarkable and she's creatively gifted and a genius at that. But it's my job to kind of break it down into places, into processes that people can actually follow and that's, and be repeatable. And if we just talk about just be organic, be authentic, create quality content, how are you gonna take action on that? It's very vague in general. So that's just the perspective I'm going from. Again, I agree everything in the approach that she takes, but that's why I approach the ways that I approach it, because I have to teach people how to do this, and I have to be able to reproduce it over and over and over again, which is extremely difficult. Any thoughts, Bruna? So many. Oh, good. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to think of all the points. I was like, ooh. I just to start with on. one. We'll be happy with one. Well, as you mentioned, when you are the brand, you are the product, which means in order to provide a product to your audience, you need to take care of yourself to have anything to provide. My message in my platform is based on authenticity, vulnerability, and transparency. So that's how I lead in my engagement and what I post. If I am burnt out and I can't do it, I take a social media detox and I let my followers know that because I want to encourage them to do the same. This is one form of engagement with people. If I can't do it for a little bit of time, I will let you know. I'm just gonna take a break, I'll be back in a week, whatever. I actually took two weeks recently and my Instagram, I don't know what this says about my content, but my Instagram profile visits went up 10 times when I wasn't posting or on it at all. And I gained like, I think 1500 followers organically when I wasn't posting anything for two. So I'm like, do they appreciate me more when I'm gone? I don't know. But I mean, I love the fact that you're, you're an author that I think it's important to say you're the author of a book called Let That Shit Go. I did write and, that book. Uh, um, so you're letting that shit go and, and you're getting more See, more when you followers. let it go, it just That's comes right. to you. That's no, right. for sure. But I agree with everything that both of you were saying. I really try to implement the um, humanity in social media as much as possible. And we've only talked about Instagram. I mean, there's so many other platforms. There are, and we're going to get to those. But if you want to talk to any of them, that'd be great. That'd be like queuing things up perfectly. Like I almost had prompted you to do that. I'm very I mean, proud the of two you. big ones that come to mind are Twitter and YouTube for me personally. And YouTube, again, to be transparent, is probably my least favorite. But I do get engagement on there. However, it's usually negative. And in my mind, I try to tell myself, listen, a You'd rather have a disengagement, click. right? I mean. Right. Well, that's the other thing going back to the mental health. When I started to realize that I was posting videos and getting so much engagement, but it was negative engagement from certain groups of people who were just bashing me for whatever reason they needed to, that t that's taxing, obviously. Right. So I told um, my friend who helps me with my channel, I was like, I need you to turn off all my notifications. I don't need to get emails for all these new comments. But what happens too is I've turned off comments on certain videos because I'm like, the engagement is not enough for me to have to deal with this. 
then they search for your email and they email you. Mm. So I'm just like, okay, at some point you just have to consider that these are people out in the world who feel protected by a screen. They're going to share what they want to share. You take it, you dump it. Because at the end of the day, there are people who are benefiting from the content that you're creating, and they may not be as vocal all the time, but you have to keep that in mind. And then Twitter is just a beast. A beast. But a fun one sometimes. A fun beast. Uh, so, Greg, from your standpoint, in terms of the um, platforms that you work on and stuff, how are you managing your presence? How much... Are you on there? And well, do you I, have to let that shit go sometimes? Yeah, so, well, I don't consider myself an influencer now. I was I was going in that route, and then I got pulled into more producing stuff for, for other people. Um, but I still do my own content. That being said, uh, as far as burnout, I mean, yes, you do get burned out. You have to understand it's a lifestyle. And, like, once you start posting, you can't really stop. Because I, I started posting, and then I stopped for a bit, and now it's, like, hard to you know, regain the fans. Um, but you, you basically need to build a team, like, or get people that... Suckers, not, I think it's what they're actually called in yeah, the I mean, technical well, term. Yeah, I mean, well, you don't need to build a team, like, you know, financially speaking, pay someone. You need to find people with similar interests and all help each other because uh, it, it's, it's very hard to do that. You are going to experience burnout. Um, and it's very hard to, like, go down that path if you do want to go down the path of an influ influencer by yourself. Um, you have to have other people that will hold you accountable, and if you don't, you know, it's like a job. If you, if you don't feel like going into work, you still have to do it. Or a workout buddy. You yeah, know, same, workout. same thing. You know, it's a, it's a posting buddy. Yeah, get ripped online. Yeah, yeah. Shane, I'm, I'm sort of curious from your standpoint, since you all are, are organizing across all these screens, we've seen TikTok explode, really, in the last year or so. Um, in terms of who you guys are trying to organize and reach out to, where are you seeing opportunities? Where have you had the most success? Is most of the YouTube folks? I'm also fascinated about what's going on in the Twitch space. It's interesting. Twitch, the live streaming service owned by Amazon Today, launched Twitch Studio, which is designed to be their inboard tools to let you live stream through their basically their publishing platform, um, which is interesting. So where are the opportunities you guys have seen? Where's the growth? What's happening? Yeah, so in, that's a really interesting question. So we've kind of been approaching it. Now speak um, in the mic. Can you all hear me? Um, we've actually been approaching it kind of through verticals, so not platforms. So um, beauty and comedy and family channels have been the most interested in this space and the um, protections that we offer. So just to break that down a little bit, beauty often work with brands and a lot of those brands are signatory to our contracts so that we've been trying to help them navigate how to make sure that they're getting a union contract and getting compensated in a way that is uh, beneficial to everyone involved. So you've got some space. leverage there because mm -hmm. you've got Procter the brands Gamble, involved. Procter & Gamble, Unilever, yeah, yeah. you know, The big CPG brands. companies and all yeah, that. Yeah, that doesn't mean that everything's going under our umbrella, but we're working towards that space. With family channels, you know, they in the recent months, recent years, really, have been very vulnerable to changes in the algorithms and different platforms with Kidpocalypse and now the FTC and the COPPA rules that we've been working on. Just, just to clarify, Kidpocalypse is mm -hmm. what's happening with YouTube in particular. There's a crackdown on kid content and many sites on YouTube that have children in them mm -hmm. under 13 under COPPA, which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act of mm -hmm. 15 years ago or whatever, 
It's uh, the big cudgel that the FTC w uh, wields if you have kid-related content or marketing. And kidpocalypse means that if you have that content, you may get demonetized by the vast numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just for those who didn't read TubeFilter this last couple of weeks. But, uh, exactly. So that's going on, though, but that's, that's a big deal for a lot of folks, and they have to figure out what kind of content they're going to... Yeah, especially with the whole COPPA rule. Um, I mean... The FTC right now is uh, opening up consideration with how they want to hold people liable. So obviously, we first and foremost want to protect children in this space and children viewers in this space. But um, I there's think no there's Jackie Cooper law, for instance, in the kids space, yeah, right? Sure. There's no. If you know who Jackie Cooper was, he was a child star. His parents went out. I mean, he made zillions of dollars. He was in the kid. He was the kid in the Charlie Chaplin movie, famously, and uh, is it Cougar? Coogan? Coogan. Coogan. Sorry, Coogan. I'm old and. Uh, but not quite that old. But Coogan, uh, his parents went out and spent all his money. So by the time he hit adulthood, he's broke after being a big, big star. And so they set up a bunch of protections in the state of California. And I think they have it in New York, New York as well. Yeah. Um, everybody else is screwed. But in New York and California, it's good to be a kid. Um, but they don't have anything like that in this space. So all these influencers, like all these guys, are barely old enough to drink, as you can tell. And uh, even younger than them, they could be vulnerable. They could be making millions of dollars as influencers, and yet parents are out, you know, drinking Dom Perignon and, and uh, hitting, the, hitting the yacht with mm -hmm. their money, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we don't have those kinds of protections yet. Not yet. Okay. Uh, you clearly aren't working hard enough. I think you need to get a different work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, Burnout's 